Please remain standing for the reading of the word from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we begin this, uh, this sermon. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we give thanks for this powerful passage. That speaks to us even today for the word of unity, for the parts of the body, and for the gifts that are given. We thank you for this um, body of believers and for those who may be visiting and for those who um, are joining us for other ways too. We give thanks for all of us here and the uh, fellowship and joy that we can share through the word. Be with uh, Pastor Andrew as he brings this word. May your wisdom and insight that you've given him be hopeful and helpful and joyful to all of us as we move into the rest of our week and beyond. We ask all this in Christ's name alone. Amen. Amen. Another 20 minutes of morning, so good morning. It'll be afternoon by the time we're done. Looking forward to diving into this passage. As you know, we are in this series in Ephesians. We, we started it last fall, actually, and then took a break. We did the first three chapters, a, a feast to enjoy. We, we looked at 
this wonderful book uh, that Paul has written for believers all over Asia Minor, and it comes to us. It's a book clearly that is beneficial to us and edifying for us to dive into this. Uh, first three chapters as we have them divided. I say it that way because, you know, the Paul didn't write with chapters and verses. He was just writing a letter. Uh, more likely, he was preaching a sermon that got written down. Uh, it was for the public consumption. The first half of the letter, to put it that way, uh, was, uh, it, it's all about God. It's a view from his heavens, what God is doing, what God is building, how he has uh, stepped in to redeem people and to make the two one and to make this church and all of these different things. Last week, we mentioned it begins to change in tone a little bit from when we hit chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, we have this word, therefore, and whenever you see a therefore, you always have to ask, What's it there for? Uh, and it's because it's connecting what is going to come with, uh, with everything that has gone before. And, and so Paul is moving from the indicative mode, the things that are true, statements, uh, to the imperative mode, that which we are to do, commands. And he's linking them together, and we would be gravely mistaken if we were to take up Ephesians 4 to 6, and we were to just take these commands and not realize that they're grounded in what Christ has done, what God has done through Christ for us. So it is Christ that empowers us, and we're going to see that again today, but he is calling us. And we said last week, he's calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Uh, we've been given this calling as sons, as daughters. We've been made into a new citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We've been built into the family of God. We've been built into the body of God. So all these different images that, that Paul is given of followers of Jesus, which we call the church, and the church, we see at the end of chapter 1, uh, what we have is chapter 1, the church is his body, it's the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. That's, that's the goal of this whole thing, it is that Jesus would be glorified, that his glorious grace would be recognized, that it would fill the earth, and, and that we would all live in proper relationship to our Creator, to our Redeemer, to our friend. Uh, and, and so that's what Paul has been talking about. So today, he's going to, or at least in this beginning part uh, of chapter 4, and we're really going to focus on the first 12 verses uh, this morning. Michael is going to pick up and, and finish off this section that was read, looking at 12 to 16 next week. Uh, but he, he focuses on the body of Christ, the church. And the very first thing that he says, you know, as you begin to work out the calling to which you have been called, you have to do it in the context of the church. 
I'm not talking about just the local church. You know, we have these individual manifestations of the church, which is kind of our, um, our lab. It's kind of where it gets worked out. But the church, capital C, uh, the, the church all throughout the ages, all throughout uh, the world, all throughout different theological traditions, all of that, is that you have to recognize that your call is comprehensive and requires everybody. Now, that's a, that's a struggle for us uh, in our modern times, particularly in our affluent Western modern times, particularly in the philosophical milieu in which we live, uh, in, in which we tend to operate very individualistically. Um, you know, and we've talked about this before, uh, the phenomena of de-churching. Uh, I'm sure if I went around and had you raise your hand and said, how many of you know somebody who formerly was very regular in church who no longer goes to church? Uh, probably most people would raise their hands. Uh, because 40 million people uh, in, in America fit that category. They, they used to be what we would call evangelical Christians. They were in church every week, uh, and, and now they no longer go uh, at all. Um, various reasons. Um, some of the reasons, just toxicity and leadership and churches, wounds that have happened, we recognize that. That's not the vast majority of people. Uh, that's, you know, out of the 40 million, you're, you're looking at less than a quarter of the people that would identify that being the reason why they're out of church. More likely, it's what our friend Jake Medor says in a recent article in, um, in The Atlantic. He talks about the, the defining problem driving people out of churches as being just how life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America, he says, simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or a joint common life. Rather, 21st century America is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages to the professional life uh, and the prospects of your children or grandchildren. Workism reigns in America, still quoting. Uh, and because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that just does not add up. There, there's just simply not time for me to be engaged in what it would take for us to be a community. There's simply not enough value in it for me when my identity is based on what you think of me because of my accomplishments in school or in sports or uh, in the workplace or, or any of these things. It's simply not valuable enough for me to engage in the mundane, everyday aspects of what it takes to be a community, bringing a meal to somebody, caring for somebody, helping them move, uh, listening to somebody, just 
just doing nothing and being in somebody else's presence, that is the kind of thing that we are called to as a church, as a community, as the body of Christ. It's that which is going to fill the earth and capture its imagination. More on that in just a moment. So how do we begin to attack this, or how do we begin to uh, find ourselves in a different place? Another article, or another, it was an interview between William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas. Some of you might know uh, those names. Willimon was a longtime Methodist pastor. He's now retired. Uh, He taught at Duke Divinity School for a long time. Hauerwas is a philosopher, ethicist, also is at Duke. And they were just having a conversation about um, the way that things have changed and, um, you know, how, how things operate in churches and pastoral ministry and all of these things. Pastoral care, actually the title of the, um, the article had something to do with pastoral care has completely failed uh, in America. Just an exciting title, right? Really encouraging, draws you in, all of those things. But uh, they're talking, Hauerwas says it this way, and he says it pretty bluntly. So there's going to be a tendency, I think, for you to want to put your shields up after you hear this and protect and deflect. I would encourage you just to keep your shields down and uh, maybe ask yourself if what Howard Wass is saying here is true. He's like, how, how, do we, how do we go forward? How do we become being the church? How do we really care for one another? He says it's so hard right now because care has become obsessed with the personal wounds of people in advanced industrial societies who have discovered that their lives lack meaning. And, and this is because America tells us, you know, how, how do your lives get meaning? It's how you work. It's what you do. It's what you accomplish. So if you're older and you're no longer working, no longer accomplishing anything, your life doesn't have meaning. If you're a kid, you know, and, and you can't excel in sports or music or something like that, like what, what really does your life mean? You know, if you, if you struggle with a disability or any of these types of things, we, we no longer have meaning. If we're depressed or if we see that we're not making it, we, we struggle. We become obsessed with these things. Here's where Hauerwas gets, uh, gets a little bit more direct. He says, quit taking yourselves so seriously. Enjoy having your narcissism defeated by being drawn into the church's eschatological mission to witness to the finished work of Christ's cross and his resurrection. Do you you hear what he's saying? He's saying there is something bigger than you. There is, there is a vision, there is a meaning, there is a purpose, there is a coherence and a beauty to life that, that is greater than anything that you will ever put on a resume, that you will ever put on a CV, that you will ever have some sort of certificate or trophy that will acknowledge your mastery of this particular thing. There is something greater than that. And that is exactly what Paul is saying here in chapter 4. He's saying when we come to the church, 
the body of Christ throughout the world, you are coming to the pinnacle of what it means to be a human. You, you are coming to the pinnacle of what it means to reflect the image that has been put in us from the very creation of the world. And so I want to understand that a little bit. Again, we're, we're going to do this a bit broadly. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, one, he, he had a sermon for every one of the ones in here, and uh, we could look at every gift. We could spend a lot of time in detail, and I would encourage you to go back and think about this, but we're going to handle it a little bit more broadly to get the sense of it. Two things. In this passage, we see uh, both unity and diversity. Uh, we see this unity that is foundational to who we are as Christ's bride. Uh, and then we see this diversity uh, that is functional in terms of how we live out our life day by day. Unity is not uniformity. There is a diversity to the gifts that, that Christ gives us. But first of all, this foundational unity. Two observations on this. The first one is this. It's a unity that comes out of and is totally caught up in the unity that belongs to God. You know, from, from the very early days when God revealed himself to his people, uh, they would say the Shema that you had there in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know, Shema Israel, Elahai Aheduhenu. You know, hero Israel, the Lord is one. The, the Lord is one. He is the God that, that fulfills all things. And this is exactly what Paul has been putting us to or pointing us to as we've gone throughout Ephesians, this picture of Christ and his body, his country, uh, his household, all of these different pictures that fill all in all. The Lord is one. And so we see here, Paul throughout Ephesians has been using all of this Trinitarian language. You remember back to chapter 1, you have, you know, the Father, then you have the work of the Son and redemption, and then you have the application of that in the Spirit. Here we have it again, this time in reverse order. It goes Spirit, then the work of redemption. There's one Spirit. We're maintaining the unity of the Spirit, verse 3. Then the work of redemption, uh, baptism, one Lord, Jesus is known as our Lord, and then you see the Father who is over all and in all. So it, it is tied up with, with who God is, a and that's the unity that we are to experience. That's the unity that is to captivate our imaginations, you know, that, that we are more than just simply ourselves, that, that we belong to something greater than what we can do on our own. That we're a part of that, that cosmic unity. That we're part of the, 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 the monotheism that God is and, and he invites us into this. Now, just in terms of application... This is really important. I mean, why do we come here in church? You know, what, what do we come here for? I mean, we come here for community. It's nice to see people and say, hey, how you doing? And 
it's nice to uh, be known in a place and, and have a community that can meet our needs at various places along the way. But I hope that part of the reason why we come here, and I know part of the thing, part of the uh, calling that that I perceive for myself is to is to raise our eyes, is to get our eyes above our schoolwork, to get our eyes above our friendships, to get our eyes above our marriages, our problems, our uh, get our eyes above our work and our vocation, and and to realize God. You know, to, to start with God and, and realize that, that He is the mover, that He is the primary mover. And if I am not relating to God, if the way that I'm thinking about my relationship is not coming out of that, if the way that I'm thinking about my work is not coming out of the reality of who God is, then we're going to be stuck. And so, Part of what Paul wants us to see here as he goes through this is he says, you were made in the image of God, and and God is one. There is a unity to God, and, and that is what defines you as a people, as the church. The second thing that I would want to mention is that I want to highlight for you is that the unity that Paul is talking about here, and I've already sort of alluded to it, uh, the unity that Paul is talking about here is not something that we have to achieve. It's not something that we have to make. Sometimes I think about the ways we go about it. We, We talk about like unity and diversity. We talk about these things a lot in our uh, modern world. Uh, some of you have, uh, you know, go to schools, you have diversity coordinators, and maybe you have that in your work. Um, there is a sense there in which we're recognizing that we come from different places and we want to become one, and, and in order to do that, we have to achieve this sort of unity. All of these different things, you can think about it on a national level, you can think about it in different ways. I'm not against those things, and we're going to talk about the, the diversity within the unity in just a moment. But what the Bible is telling us is something very different than that. In, in a world that is more marked by divisions and more marked by, you know, what we, we disagree on, whether it be a theological position, a political position, whether it be because of our ethnicities and where we're from, whether it be because of our gender, our marital status, or any of these different types of things, what Scripture is saying to us is that in Christ, you are one. You know, there is unity. You don't create it. We don't make it. I mean, I I love looking out here, and and we see people from all over the globe. So many people grew up speaking, you know, different languages. Your mother tongue is not English. Uh, We don't make unity with one another, despite those differences. We are unified. Uh, and this is just an incredibly freeing thing. And, and, and I just have been thinking about it, sort of captured with this, thinking through some of you, just various faces, and think, yes, this is awesome. We are one. 
You know, we belong to each other. Uh, no matter where you were born, uh, no matter, like I said, your gender, your marital status, your age, all of these things. We received uh, Lucas and Lydia Bosma. They were sitting right there uh, this morning. We received them in the first service into membership. And it's just exciting to think about them as they make their profession of faith being a brother and sister in Christ. You know, now they're, what, 11 and 13? I don't exactly know how old they are. But, but they, we are one. We don't have to become one. We don't have to, like, figure it out in that sense. We, we are one. And, and what Paul says here is recognize that and verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So that's really his first imperative here is that we maintain this unity, that we recognize that this is what God has done. We don't have to do it, but that we maintain it. Uh, that, that word maintain is, uh, can be translated different ways, keep, keep watch over, guard, uh, that we guard the unity that we have because it's hard. It, it, it's hard for us to do that. I mean, we, we know that we live in a world that wants to separate, that wants to divide, that wants to talk about ways that we are different more than ways that we are alike. And so we become suspicious of people. Uh, we become suspicious of people who think differently from us, whether it be politically or theologically. I mean, I think about all of the Christians throughout the world. And some of you come from different traditions, are part of different theological traditions. Uh, we are one in Christ. But sometimes we let the idea that you're Pentecostal or you're Baptist or I'm Presbyterian, we let those things, you know, come in between us in ways that aren't healthy. I'm not saying that they're not important. I'm not saying that they're not real distinctions. But we are one in Christ. And learning to recognize that and, and lean into it. The other reason why we have to guard this so closely is because of ourselves. <laughs> you, you probably picked up, you know, the manner that Paul says, verse 2. He says, walk, walk worthy uh, of the calling which you have been called uh, with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to keep this unity, to watch over this unity. Now, you know, I start reading those humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And I'm like, I'm not sure that that's me. <laughs> I, I don't always feel that way. And I don't feel that way when it comes to differences. And I get impatient. And I, I, I don't like to work through hard things all the time. And, and so I'd rather be with people who are like me. I'd rather, you know, go the easy route, all of these different things. But Paul says, you know, we, we have to be careful to guard our unity because we really not only battle the culture in this, but we battle ourselves. We battle our hearts. Here's what uh, William Barclay, who is a commentator, Ephesians, he says this, every one of these great virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, love, uh, each one of them is an obliteration of self. So long as self is at the center of things, this unity, this oneness can never fully exist. Uh, 
In a society where self predominates, men cannot be other than a disintegrated collection of individualistic and warring units. When self dies and Christ springs to life within our hearts, then comes the peace, the oneness, the unity that is the great hallmark of the true Christian church. Another writer puts it this way, Christianity is God-directed, Christ-defined, and other-oriented. Only with such direction away from ourselves will we actually find ourselves. Yet this is, this is why Paul says, okay, let's start here. Let's start. As you seek to work this out, recognize that you as a church are bound together, that you are united in the finished work of Christ, and, and that this is a major part of your calling. This is a major part of what it means to walk worthy of the manner of which you have been called is that you keep watch over, guard this unity. And it's going to be hard because you're going to have to die. <laughs> that obliteration of self. Barclay is in a very different generation than Hauerwas. But they're both saying the same thing. You know, enjoy how the gospel subverts your narcissism. Enjoy how the gospel gives you the, the gift of self-forgetfulness, as Keller says. Um, and, and that is key to maintaining, watching over these unity, this unity. The second thing that I want to highlight for you is that within this unity, there is a diversity. Unity does not equal uniformity. And, and sometimes we think that. Uh, we think, okay, well, if we're truly united, then that means we're all going to think alike or we're all going to see things alike. And we do tend to gather that way. We gather that way in, in our neighborhoods. We gather that way in, in churches. We gather that way in work, all of these different types of things. But that's not exactly the picture uh, that we're given here, particularly if you look at verse 7, notice that Paul is starting to talk about uh, each one of us in the context of unity. He says, grace was given to each one in accordance with the measure of Christ's gift. So he says, you, you are all, you know, the body of Christ, he's using that picture here, that image. You're all the body of Christ, but within the body of Christ, you are each one. And, and, and you are receiving grace. And you are receiving grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And, and that, of course, just to summarize, you know, 7 to 12 here, when he says that, he, he breaks into another one of these interludes. You know, Paul is often Again, he's, he's probably speaking this letter, uh, and so he says Christ's gifts, and then he just like goes off into this thing where he talks about, you know, how Christ came, you know, was in heaven, then he descended into the lower parts of the earth, and, and as he rose, he gave gifts to men, all of these different things, quoting Psalm 68, which we had read for us earlier. Uh, he's using there an image from the ancient world where a general who was a, a victor, a conqueror, 
would come back to his home city, and there would be this, this huge retinue, this parade. And instead of throwing out like Tootsie Rolls and penny candy and things like that we get at the parade, he was handing out the, the plunder, the, the gifts that they came back, the spoils of war. This, after all, was the city maybe that was helping to fund the war machine, that was praying, offering oblations to the gods, all of these different things. And Paul is, is using that image to say, that's who Christ is. Christ is this amazing conquering hero, and now he is ascending and he's giving these gifts to men. It's kind of why we started with that, that song, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent, because you, you have that same picture of, of the, the triumphant victory of Christ who is giving gifts to men. Uh, and, and that's what he's saying is happening here. Now notice, if you take verse 7 and you connect it with verse 11, it really reads straight across. Take out the interlude. He says, uh, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Namely, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul has several gift lists in his writings. Uh, some of you are familiar with the gift lists in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. Here again, he's using the imagery of the body. He's talking about gifts a little differently there. He's talking about personal gifts that we might have, the gift of helps or the gifts of edification or the gifts of prophecy or encouragement or any of these different things. None of his guest lists are, are comprehensive. They, they're all selective. Uh, and, and so we don't have to read these lists and say, well, that's not me. I must not have any gifts. No, we're, we're told that each one receives the gifts that we need. Uh, but Paul is using examples of the type of gifts. Here, as he's talking about this, this body that is expressing the unity of God, it's interesting he doesn't talk about gifts God gives to people, but rather he talks about people that God gives in order to unlock the gifts. Uh, he's talking about the pastors and the evangelists and the apostles and all of these things. Now, again, we could spend some time going through each one of these and looking at the, the difference between an apostle, which has primarily passed away, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, all of that. Uh, but the point is, is here he says, as a church, as the body of Christ, you have been given these gifts in order to unlock you so that you can do the ministry of the church, so you can bear witness to Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace, that you would be equipped. And that's the picture that, that Paul gives us to the end that, you know, Christ would, would grow, would fill all in all, and, you know, the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth like the waters, you know, cover the earth. That's, that's always been the picture. And, and, and that's what Paul is, is saying here. So we can take a couple of things from this just as we walk through this section and, um, and, and realize that, you know, you are connected to something huge, like, you may feel small today. 
You may feel ineffective, you may feel damaged, you may feel all sorts of different things. But if you have surrendered your life to Christ, if Christ has, has redeemed you and given you new life, you, you are connected to something huge. You know, as I said earlier, it's something way bigger than anything you're ever going to put on a CV. Uh, it's, It's an enormous vision, and you are connected to it. But secondly, you're not only connected to it, you are indispensable to it. We need you. You know, Christ needs you. The body of Christ needs you. This cannot be a spectator sport. You cannot just say, oh, I'm going to come and get what I can out of church. You know, we, we need, this is all hands on deck. This is everybody functioning. You know, again, this is partially why Paul uses the body imagery. You know, his, his, probably his most common traveling companion was Luke, the doctor. You know, so Luke was probably always talking about bodies, and uh, Paul is saying, eh, that's a great image, you know, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But you think about your body. You need every part of it. You know, right now, I just think about all the pieces of my body that are firing and, and how I need them. Grateful that my synapses are, are the right you know, distance apart so thoughts can go on and grateful for my mouth and the ability of my lungs to project. I'm grateful for my hands to gesticulate. I'm grateful for my big toe uh, that is helping me balance. I'm grateful for my kidney that is like filtering all of the various junk out of my body. I'm grateful for my colon. How many of you are grateful for your colons? We're not going to talk about their function right now. But uh, I'm grateful for all of those things. And what Paul is saying is that you may be a big toe, but you're important. You you may be a mouth. Be careful. (laughs) Watch out. There's a lot of responsibility there. You're you're important. You may be an arm. You may need to serve. There's a lot of different ways that we function as a body, but we need everybody. We need everybody old, young. We need people who have had the opportunity with education, those who have not. We need people with, with skills to cook. We, we need everybody, including those who oftentimes are pegged with disabilities. You know, we, we have lots of people in our, in our congregation, and, and they, their life just hasn't played out exactly like normal people, whatever that is. Uh, we need everybody. And, and, and what Paul is saying is you're all part of the body. And the last thing that Paul says, and I've already alluded to this, but let me just finish here, is he says this unity, which is, is, is important, and you have to be careful to maintain it. You know, make sure that you're watching over it. Recognize that unity is not uniformity and collectively, you know, so all these different people, different areas of the world, different backgrounds, all of the things that we've been talking about are are going to reflect this unity. But never forget, never forget that it's God that fuels it. 
You know, Jesus came and finished the work. You are never going to earn your way into heaven by being a good church man or woman. You are never going to earn your way uh, into the hall of faith uh, by doing your best to maintain unity. Those are good things. We should do those things. But it's Christ that has finished the work. He is the conquering victor. He is the one that is giving us the gifts in order that we can work this out. We don't do it in order to be loved. We do it because we are loved. And if we ever get that order wrong, we fall into moralism, we fall into legalism, we fall into something that is anti-gospel. I think you recognize, you know, when we think about the prodigal son and we think about profligate living and we think about him going off into a far country and spending his money on on drink and, and women and all of these different things, we know he's in a far country. But that older brother is in a far country too because he thinks that he's keeping the law and he thinks that he's doing all of these things in his own power. And he says to the father, you know, didn't I serve you all these years? I deserve, I deserve to be loved in such a way. If we ever begin to think that following God's law is what takes us, what makes us beautiful in his sight, then then we've missed the gospel. You can miss it like the younger brother or you can miss it like the older brother, but you've missed it. But what Paul says here is Jesus has finished the work, and he is giving good gifts to men. Now, go be who you are. Go, go fly. I mean, you, you have a jet engine in you. You know, take it up. Push it to its limits. Be who God has created you to be. Be who God has redeemed you to be. Repent of the narcissism that keeps us on the ground. And allow this, this vision, this beauty that Christ is holding before us, that Paul is holding before us, to fill us in order that God might be over all and in all and through all and that all may see, all may see uh, the beauty of who Christ is. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for... Just the way that it it gets up under our our skin. (laughs) We thank you the way that it it opens the hood of our car, so to speak, and exposes us uh, in order that we might be fixed, in order that um, that we might be tuned up so that we can run that we, can, uh, that we can fly in a way that shows forth your glory and what you have done through Christ. You have broken down the dividing wall of hostility. You have made the two one. You have formed this unity out of all of the world. And now you say to us, go, be who you've been made to be. Maintain this unity. Um, Lord, we pray that we would appreciate it, that we would look around even today and uh, celebrate the fact that so many people with lives submitted to Jesus seeking to live for Him, and we are one. And and we pray that you you would help us to reflect that to the world around us. 
Meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.